0: Well, good morning, everybody. I had to go back and look in my calendar this week. I was trying to remember how long we have been in this series. And uh, we started this almost three months ago, where we said we were just going to do this walk through the Old and New Testament, touching on the major themes, the major characters, and learn what we could about our relationship with God from that. Uh, Last Sunday, we talked about the resurrection. This week, we're going to try to cover everything from the resurrection through the establishment of the church in the Bible. And to do that, we're going to go to the book of Acts. Some of your Bibles would call it Acts of the Apostles, because that's what largely it chronicles, is the beginning of the church, and then the first few decades of the church's existence. It was written by Luke, who was also the author of the Gospel of Luke, that we looked through a couple of weeks ago. So here's how Luke starts to describe the beginnings of the church. He says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. He talked to them about the kingdom of God. And once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John was baptized with water, But in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think this command had a real high probability of confusing the disciples. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, not a common conversation or terminology in their day. Now, they knew about the Holy Spirit. Old Testament references had taught them that the Holy Spirit at times rested on, specific leaders and teachers, like prophets, priests, kings. The Holy Spirit would come and rest on them to help them accomplish a specific task. And then when that task was done, the Holy Spirit left. Through the Old Testament references, they knew that. They also knew from walking around with Jesus, from living with him for three years, that the Holy Spirit had been guiding him and empowering him in every phase of his ministry. They knew that the Holy Spirit had been with Jesus every step. But this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit was an entirely new idea. I mean, Jesus had mentioned it a handful of times, but what he said about it left them with more questions than answers. To their credit, they went back to Jerusalem and they prayed. For seven days they prayed and they waited. And as the events of that week began to unfold, God would give his followers an introduction to the Holy Spirit that would blow away their simple ideas that they had and any ideas that we might have about his power in our lives. So, any of you know that song? Yeah, you didn't experience the 60s if you know that song. Couldn't remember it if you had to. Uh, So Luke tells us that Jesus remained on earth for 40 days after his resurrection And for his followers, it probably started to feel like this was the new normal, right? I mean, he died, he was raised from the dead, he's back, he's hanging out with them. Jesus is back to stay. And at some point, his disciples started to ask, what's next? It's a logical question, right? I mean, if Rome can't keep Jesus down, if death can't keep him down, then I think the possibilities are endless for him to rock the world. So Luke writes, when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They just nagged him with this question. And it shows that after all this time with him, after all of his teaching, they still held on to the popular ideology that the the Messiah was primarily a political or a military figure. So Jesus, now... Now are you going to free us from the Romans? Now are you going to bring back the glory to Israel that we had when Solomon was king, when David was king? Now, right? And Jesus just does this gentle redirect of their question. He says, you know, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. And they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Very gently, he points out to them again that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a political one. But they, they through the power of the Spirit, are going to spread the gospel all over the known world. And it will happen when the Spirit comes on them with great power. The Greek word there is dunamis, which... Is what we get our word dynamite from. It's an explosive, unsettling power that's going to come on them. And after saying this, something really surprising happened. Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white robed men suddenly appeared among them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he's going to return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So they get this gentle nudge from a couple of angels that appear among them. And they've just been bumped out of watching the sky to see if they can get one more glimpse of Jesus. And they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, Luke says, which was a distance of about half a mile. When they got back to Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Most likely, this is the same room where they celebrated the Passover with Jesus a few weeks earlier. The upper room is how Luke writes it in the original language. And they were staying there. They had good memories anchored there with Jesus. They stayed in that room to wait for him. And it took a lot of courage to do that. To just hang around Jerusalem. Bible says they all all met together. They were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other women, and the brothers of Jesus as well. Same brothers that less than six months earlier tried to convince Jesus he was on the wrong course, didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe he was sent by God. They've had a conversion. Now they're following. So it took a lot of courage for this whole group to hang around Jerusalem because the religious leaders had made it clear their intention wasn't just to kill Jesus, but to end this political and religious uprising that had been started by this carpenter from Nazareth. I wonder as I read this account, how long could you and I hold it together in that hostile environment? How long could you and I pray? A day, two? Could we do the seven days that they did? Days praying for the Holy Spirit to come in a way he never has before. Days where we struggle to keep our fear from overcoming our faith. They prayed continually for 7 days and what happened next was just a testimony to not only God's power but his perfect sense of timing. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were together meeting in one place. Pentecost was the largest festival of the year on the Jewish calendar. It fell exactly 50 days after Passover. And it was a celebration of the summer's wheat harvest. That was the primary purpose. But there was this secondary purpose. Because they celebrated at uh, Pentecost, they celebrated God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So you have Pentecost, where they're remembering the law, and God's about to say, I have a new truth for you. So every Jewish male whether he was born a Jew or was converted to Judaism, struggled to make it to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Whether you lived inside of Jerusalem or you lived halfway around the world, you wanted to be in Pentecost. You were commanded to be in Pentecost. I'm sorry, in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so like every other celebration of Pentecost, the city streets were bursting at the seams with people. When suddenly... There was this sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. You ever been in a tornado? Been near one? Just kind of hear that sound? And I know you've heard people describe it on the news. It's this stereotypical person they find every time to describe a tornado. They live in a trailer. They're wearing a beater tee. And they have some kind of a hillbilly accent. They say, it sounded like a freight train came through here every time. Well, Luke couldn't say that, and I doubt that he wore a beater tee. but Luke couldn't say that because trains weren't around then. but this was the same kind of a sound. And that sound, not the wind, but that sound filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames of fire or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each person in the room. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you find multiple places where fire was a symbol of God's presence for one reason or another. Right after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and were thrown out, God put a cherubim holding a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden to keep them from coming back and eating from the tree of life. If you read on and you read in the book of Exodus, you'll find that God used a pillar of fire to symbolize not just his presence with them, but to guide them in their wanderings in the wilderness. Fire was a symbol of God's presence. And everyone present, all 120 of them, not just the 11 who were the close followers of Jesus at this point, but every believer was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them this ability. I'll be honest, if I'm in the room with 120 friends and they all start speaking a foreign language they've never studied, it's going to freak me out. You with me on that? What would it have been like to watch this flame come in through an open window, split apart and separate, and a little piece of the fire rests on all 120 people in the upper room? And then, what was it like to hear them start speaking in a language they'd never studied? When that happened, all of the expectancy burning inside of them for the last 50 days, all of the emptiness they'd felt for seven days since Jesus ascended into heaven was suddenly filled. And the disciples received this life-giving Spirit of God in a more intimate and powerful way than anyone had ever known. At that time, Luke writes, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. God's perfect timing. The events of the Old Testament now start to look less random. They're more connected together, even down to the exile and the captivity that they experienced in Babylon and Syria that scattered Jews all over the known world. Now, the descendants of those exiles are in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost, and when they return home, they will scatter the seeds of the gospel all over the world. When these devout Jews living in Jerusalem heard the noise, that loud noise, they wanted to find out what the source of it was. So they came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Now, there is a a bit of an ethnic slur coming in this passage that we would miss, but I'll explain it to you. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. I mean, there it is, right? They're from Galilee, for goodness sake. And yet we hear them speaking our native tongue. (laughs) I read that this week, and it made me think of my favorite memory, one of my favorites of my dad. Um, And it happened right around my daughter's wedding. Uh, My dad was born in the hills of Appalachia, deep in the mountains. And he had a Kentucky accent that was deeply anchored into his speech. He could not escape it if he wanted to. My daughter was marrying into a large Italian family. The first service laughed at that too. You must know some Italians. So we spent the better part of a week trying to teach him some Chicago Italian phrases so he could communicate with our son-in-law's family. We started simply. We tried to teach him how to say, how you doing? (laughs) Don't laugh at me. You know you want to try. You know you have tried. Oh, so, so, in fact, why don't you turn to the person beside you and ask them, how are you doing? Not bad. But I know there's no Italians because I didn't hear a single person say, no, how you doing? Because <laughs> that's the appropriate response, right? My dad, no matter how hard he tried, couldn't get that one phrase down. Kentucky came out of him every time he opened his mouth. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And he sounded more like Gomer Pyle than an Italian. It was like, how you all doing? (laughs) I got it right. I nailed it, right? No, dad, not even close. Not even close. In many respects, Galileans were the hillbillies of Israel. They were poorly educated. They were backwoodsy. They were rough around the edges. The Bible even says some of them had gun racks on the back of their camel. No, No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But they were my kind of people, right? I love it. They had their own unique, unmistakable accent. And it came because for whatever reason, there were six letters in the Hebrew alphabet called gutturals because they were made deep in the recesses of your throat. Think of having phlegm. Um, they could not pronounce those letters. And so no matter where they went, people could say, oh, yeah, you're from Galilee, right? Yeah, I figured. This crowd, filled with world travelers in Jerusalem's streets, heard the disciples speaking in more than 15 languages. And they were dumbfounded. Jesus' followers spoke the languages perfectly even through their Galilean accent. And the crowd had two very different reactions to this. Some of them stood there and were amazed and perplexed, Luke writes. What can this mean? They started to ask each other. But others in the crowd, a little more cynical, started ridiculing them and saying, yeah, you know, they're just drunk, that's all. That's all this is. I get that it was a confusing experience. This had never happened This was the first time that this miraculous representation of the Holy Spirit happened. But here's the point for me. I don't recall a single time being around somebody who's drunk and having them all of a sudden break out in perfect language of a foreign language they have never studied. Nobody I've ever been around was drunk started speaking Farsi or Afrikaans or German or Spanish. Some of them claimed they were using a little French, but I don't think it was actually the official language. In the confusion of all of this, with these accusations coming at Jesus' followers, Peter steps to the front and begins to speak. And he delivers a beautiful message that every single person there can understand. Now the miracle has gone from their tongues to the ears of the listeners. They're all understanding Peter as he speaks in one language. And he says, look, don't make any mistake about this. These people aren't drunk like some of you are assuming. I mean, 9 o'clock in the morning is much too early for that, right? You know now that the church didn't start in Vegas, okay? What you see here, Peter says, was predicted long ago. And he gives them a journey. Through the Old Testament, how Joel the prophet, how David the king of Israel, how many of the people had spoken and predicted this exact day, these exact events. He then goes on and says, "You know, all of that was carried out in Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. All of the miracles he did in his life confirmed that he was in fact sent from God." And then Peter's message gets really personal. If you read Acts chapter 2, you'll see it. His message got personal as he pointed out to the crowd that a lot of you were here just a few weeks ago and you were screaming for Jesus' death. It's your screams. It's your demands that got him crucified. But by the power of his Holy Spirit, God raised him from the dead brought him back to life. And there were 500 or more people in that audience that day who could have attested to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead because they'd had a personal interaction with him after the resurrection. And Peter ends this message with this one assertion. He says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When he stopped, his words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? In light of our guilt, what do we need to do? And Peter said, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Being baptized was really common in their day. It was something that you did when you found a rabbi whose teaching you wanted to follow. And so when you were baptized, it meant you were surrendering your beliefs. You were pledging yourself to follow this rabbi's teaching. Jesus took a very common practice in his day and put a new meaning to it. In this context, as the apostles are teaching, if you were baptized, it meant you would abandon your Jewish faith and practices. You would begin following Jesus as the new leader, new teacher in your life. And in addition to that, Peter says, when you're baptized, you will receive the gift of, Of the Holy Spirit. What you see here is the same kind of stuff God can do in your life. What you see in us, this power of the Holy Spirit, will be yours. It's not just for a select few, it's not going to come and go anymore like our history shows that it did. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside you. This uneducated fisherman from Galilee was empowered by the Holy Spirit, gave a deeply convicting message, so much so that those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to that church that day about 3,000 people in all. I would love to have seen that, wouldn't you? 3,000 people. Historians estimate that to baptize 3,000 people in one day in the city of Jerusalem would have taken every pool of water available so you can just picture this expansive city with little baptism parties breaking out all over the city of jerusalem it was just celebration everywhere you turned now i would have been a wreck if i had witnessed that just to see god's power working in that way to see people being baptized everywhere you turn i know i would because i'm a wreck at our baptism services right i cry at every single one of them because i know i know the journey that people have been on that brings them to the place where they say look i'm all in with jesus it wrecks me to lower them in the water and see the joy explode on their faces when they know that they've made that statement publicly it is life changing Baptism says, I don't just like Jesus' teaching, I'm all in. I publicly commit myself to follow the only one who loved me enough to die for me. I commit myself to the only one capable of forgiving every sin that I ever have or will commit. Look, We're going we're gonna to have that baptism service in two weeks from today, on the 22nd. And if you feel a tug on your heart, it's probably the Holy Spirit encouraging you to have a conversation about baptism and what it would mean in your life. So text me, call me, email me. Do the same with Wally or Darren. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to someone. Don't ignore that nudging are feeling to be baptized, to miss this tremendous experience and affirmation of your faith. Let this April 22nd, Be that stake you put in the ground that says, I'm all in for Jesus. In their weakness, the disciples had scattered when Jesus was being tried and persecuted by the religious leaders. Now, they have Pentecost. Seven weeks later, they are standing in front of those same religious leaders and boldly proclaiming a faith in Jesus. We cannot overestimate how much the presence of the Holy Spirit transformed their lives. These simple men from Galilee. By the power of Jesus, these people would turn the world upside down. A few weeks ago, we lost one of the heroes of our faith in Billy Graham. And a number of years before his death, he was asked, is there a simple way to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life? He thought for a minute, then he said, you know, we're all born into this world with two great spiritual needs. One is for forgiveness. And God met our need for forgiveness on Calvary. He sent his only son into the world to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But we also need goodness, Billy said. And God answers that need by sending his Holy Spirit. He is the source of the power that meets our need to escape the weakness that grips us. So I'd ask you this morning to just look deep in your heart. What is the deepest spiritual need that you have this morning? Is it a need for forgiveness? It's yours. God says it's just that simple. It's yours. He stands ready to forgive you, just like he did those people on the day of Pentecost. He stands ready to forgive you today no matter what you've done in your life. Grace covers it all. All of it. No exception. And that grace is freely given when we confess our sins and we confess our faith in Jesus. Maybe you need forgiveness this morning it's there maybe what you need this morning is goodness in your life that need may come from a nagging sin you just can't get past and if we let him the holy spirit will free us from those sins beyond that he promises to empower us to serve God in ways that we never imagined, to do incredible good in this world. So try to live your life. Don't try to live your life without the Holy Spirit. Doing that, it's like trying to hear without ears or breathe without lungs. It's impossible. We need the Holy Spirit's comfort in our lives. We need His power. We need his presence with us every day to live out this faith that we're called to. And if we'll just open up our hearts, if we'll pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh, it will be amazing what God does in our lives, what he does in our church, and what he does in our community. If we, like those early Christians, would just simply pray with all our heart that the Holy Spirit would come, and fill us, and use us.